learned, uh, they've learned to roll over, crawl, sit up, walk, drink from a straw, drink from a cup. And their personalities have begun to show through all of that. And I imagine it won't be long before they're talking. What I've noticed through this whole process of, of the growth of these small ones is how carefully they watch and mimic people. They, um, they'll just stand there and, and really pay close attention to someone, and then they'll begin to attempt to do what they see that person do. Well, that can be good and bad, of course, depending on their role models, right? So if they've got good role models, that's a, that's a positive thing. Imitating that kind of behavior is very positive. But it's uh, not just imitation, of course. They need the parent's firm and loving hand of discipline to, uh, to see them through these early years. And how like uh, small children we are in our own Christian lives. The same kinds of influences same types of influences affect us. We mimic people as well. And so it's important for us to uh, choose wisely those whom we are going to mimic or imitate as we are being molded spiritually, much like those little ones are being molded physically and emotionally. Open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 13. We're looking at verses 7 through 17. We're not going to look at all of them tonight. We're going to uh, actually only be able to look at just a few. But in this process here of, of this section of Hebrews 13, and this is the, the practical section, the application section. This is the time the doctrines that have been taught through this book are being brought to bear. As we begin to examine this section together, we're going to find five necessary steps that we must take in order to live like a Christian. In these verses 7 through 17, there are five necessary steps that we must take in order to live like a Christian. Let me read the text for you. The apostle here says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the camp. Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief." 
for this would be unprofitable for you. Five necessary steps here in this section of these verses. I've listed them for you there on your handout. The first one being is that we must duplicate godly role models. Verses 7 and 8. Secondly, and tonight these are the only two we'll get to, but tonight, secondly, we must dodge bad doctrine. The other three... Third, we must discard old ways. Fourth, we must devote ourselves to worship. And fifth, we must defer to our leaders. So these are five necessary steps that we have to take. Tonight, we're going to unpack these first two, duplication of godly leader or role models. We must duplicate godly role models, and we must dodge bad doctrine. So first, duplicating godly role models, verses 7 and 8. He begins here with, a, with an imperative for us. He says, we are to remember. We are to remember. And, and what's implied in this word is, is, is a careful consideration. A, a, a careful consideration of the meticulous details of something. We are not just to remember in a passing way. We are to remember in a, in the, in a way of contemplation. What is it that we are supposed to remember that way? Well, look at the verse again. It is those who led you. We are to give careful consideration to those that formerly led them, or that's the admonition to them. They are to give that careful consideration to those who had led them. Those who had had a a meaningful impact in their lives, specifically pastors, elders, who had been involved in these people's lives notice he says here again verse 7 remember those who led you and spoke the word of god to you do you see those two functions leading and teaching those are the two significant functions of a pastor elder timothy or paul's letter to timothy makes it very clear in in chapter 2 verse 12 chapter 3 verse 2 that these are the functions of an elder. These are the functions of a pastor to lead the fellowship, to teach the fellowship. And so the, the admonition for them here, the, the command for them here, these believers, is that they are to think back with careful consideration upon these ones who once were their pastors. And he says, considering the result of their conduct, they are to imitate their faith. The, the idea here, and, and it's not certain, but it, it certainly is, is implied, I think, in the text, is that these former pastors are no longer living. That these are pastors or elders who were involved in the early years of this fellowship, establishing this fellowship, teaching the people, discipling and leading the people, but they are, they are gone now. They have passed from the scene and most probably have passed from life. Notice, we say that because where he says, considering the result of their conduct, or, or perhaps, as you might see it in the margin, the end of their life. Considering the end of their life. Those that had, who had been among them, had led them, had taught them, had run the race before them, their lives had been, had been open book before them, but who had now finished the race and passed on to glory. By both precept and example, these 
former leaders showed this assembly the right path to tread. And in the words of, a, of Hebrews 11, verse 4, though being dead, yet they still speak. So it's a, it's a strong admonition here to consider, to reflect upon how they live their lives. How they live their lives. Now, previously, the, uh, the apostle had exhorted the church in the same general way back in chapter 11, right? Chapter 11 is, is known as the uh, hall of faith. And so he had gone back and, and the writer here had lifted out numerous examples of those that had gone before and in the Old Testament had lived the life of faith before them. And he exhorts them there to imitate that kind of, of a godly life. But here in chapter 13... He takes it to a, a different direction. He's, in chapter 11, he's saying, consider those who have gone before you whose lives you know by the sacred record. Here he takes it in a little bit different direction. He says, not only consider those who by the sacred record their lives have been lived before you, think about those that have lived in your midst. It's important to read Christian biographies. They're significant. They ought to be a part of our, of our regular reading pattern as a believer. That we might be acquainted with the great heroes of faith that have gone before us. That we might vicariously live through them. And we might understand their trials, their struggles. And we might be exhorted by their lives. And that's powerful and important. And it, it should, as I say, be a part of, of the reading patterns of all of our lives. But as important as that be, as that may be, there's something even greater than that. There is, there is those who have actually lived among us. It's an even more vivid example. Even a more vivid example than, than the biographies, whether they be Christian biographies or the very biographies contained within the scriptures themselves. It is an up close and personal kind of, of um, knowledge that we would have based on those that have lived among us. The example that lingers with us is an example that is powerful because it is intertwined with our own lives. They have, they have become part of the fabric, inextricably interwoven with our own existence. These are the patterns of personal friends, mentors, disciplers, pastor elders who have been involved in our lives. Look again at verse 7, where he says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, or that is, the end of their lives. Imitate their faith. The only way you can imitate their faith is that if you have an acquaintance with them, a deep and personal acquaintance with them, that the example of their lives lived before you has been lengthy. They haven't just blown in and blown out of town before anyone gets a chance to really know them. They have lived among you for a long period of time. It takes time to inspect a person's life up close and personal, doesn't it? You can stand up as a teacher and you can wax eloquent. You can, you can spout out the right doctrines and you can be a very dramatic uh, a, a teacher but, in, but until the people have observed your life over a long period of time, they don't really know whether the teaching matches the reality of your life. 
And what he is exhorting them to hear is, consider those whose lives you have observed for a long period of time, whose teaching and whose, whose uh, lifestyle match together. This speaks volumes, by the way, uh, with regard to the importance of lengthy pastorates. The church, I believe, is, is seriously hindered by the fact that the national average of pastors is three years and out. Three years and out. And when, the, when that's the pattern where it's never long, there's never that sense where you come to know them in a deep and personal way. And so lengthy pastorates are significant. I was telling Vince that uh, I think the first 10 years are getting to know you times. It's, uh, it's even that way in a marriage, I think. The first 10 years of a marriage can, can sometimes be the time when it's a little bit rocky. You know, you're kind of working things out. It's after 10 years that it begins to get better, and then it gets sweeter and sweeter as the years go on by. There's a need to, you know, sort of life on life for a long period of time. And, and so that's what he's exhorting them here, too. He's saying, remember back. Remember back to those men who spent significant time among you. The Apostle Peter, he describes the responsibilities of shepherds and, and he emphasizes the importance of their lives lived as a model or as an example before the congregation. Look with me over to, to 1 Peter chapter 5. It's kind of picking up where Art left off here. And by the way, contextually, I think as we flow out of the suffering uh, passage there in chapter 4, we're talking about elders' suffering. He says, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. The elders are to be examples to the flock. They are to live among them with an open life. They are to teach them, they are to lead them, but they are to live an open book life before them, including in the midst of suffering, that the congregation might learn from them how to, how to operate in that kind of a difficult environment. The Apostle Paul knew this as well. He understood the importance of being a, a godly role model. He says in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, right, that you are to follow me or imitate me as I, just as I do Christ. Follow me, he says, just like I'm following Christ. In fact, Paul uses the noun form in that verse of the same verb that is used here in Hebrews 13, verse 7. The, uh, we get the English word mimic from this Greek verb. We are to imitate. We are to mimic. We are to duplicate the lives of those who have lived before us, godly lives. Now, what is it exactly that uh, these early believers are supposed to imitate or duplicate? Look again at verse 7. It is the faith of their teachers. Do you see that? Imitate their faith. That is what it is that they are supposed to imitate. They are to imitate their faith. Not just a, a faith spoken of, not just their doctrine that they have spoken, but the, their very lives that have supported that doctrine lived out in faith. 
A life of faith backed up by a godly example. That's what they're supposed to imitate. Again, we have said this is a, this is a suffering church. This is a persecuted church. And under that kind of persecution, it's easy to wilt. But he's exhorting them here not to do so, but to imitate those that have gone before them who've lived the life of godliness, faithfulness, a faith-driven life in the midst of all of their problems. And then notice verse 8. And at first blush, it seems like verse 8 is somewhat out of place. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and yes, forever. That is a tremendous theological statement about the immutability of Christ. And you might say, well, what is that doing here in the middle of this exhortation about imitating the faith of the former pastors who have lived among you? Well, let me answer it this way. Maybe the, maybe the church was feeling like their former pastor's faith was no longer relevant to them. You know, times have changed. He, he lived like that, yeah, but, but today it's different. It's a lot harder today than it was when they were there. The persecution is more intense now. The price tag is higher that we're being asked to pay. And, and so maybe, maybe, they don't, maybe you don't understand how times have changed. Maybe, uh, maybe we as a fellowship don't need to be so rigid in our separation from the rituals of Judaism. You know, maybe if we just embraced some of them, it would kind of take the sharp edge off. And that persecution wouldn't be so intense. Maybe those guys who led us initially were just too radical for us. Times have changed. If that was what they were thinking, then certainly verse 8 is an answer to that, isn't it? Look again at that verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today. Yes, and forever. It's a foolish argument, foolish speculation to somehow say times have changed, that the godly patterns of old are no longer necessary today, that we don't need to have such a sharp edge. We don't, we don't need to live so radically for Christ. The apostle says, no, this one, Jesus Christ. Notice how by the, the, the combination of these names, he pulls together both the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. The very one their former pastors had proclaimed and followed yesterday is the same one that they need to be following today. Give me that old-time religion, right? It was, you know, it's good enough for me. That which was in the past is that which is still applicable here in the present, yesterday and today, yea, even forever. Forever. Is person... The doctrine with regard to who he is, just as true then as it is today, it'll always be true tomorrow. It was worth dying for in the old days. It's worth dying for today. And beloved, it'll be worth dying for tomorrow too. See how this sort of threads the church together in a long line of, of, of faithful Christian living. It's like a great relay race. 
And the baton is passed from one generation to another. It's the same race. It's the same baton. You can't, you don't get it and then decide that you're going to run a different kind of race. You know, I don't like the track. It's too long. It's too hard. The hills are too steep. The price is too, you know, too high to pay. The spectators throw things at me when I run around the track. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today. Yes, forever. We enter into the long line of faithful witnesses that have gone before us. 2,000 years worth. And if you go backwards into the Old Testament, into the faithful people of God there, you can take it all the way back to the beginning, can't you? You can track and trace the faithful people of God through the generations because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Of course, this, is, um, this statement is what you would expect since Jesus Christ is God, right? The psalmist says in Psalm 102, verse 25, Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like, an, like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will not come to an end, O oh God. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So who are today's role models? Let's fast forward here. Let's bring it into the 21st century. Who are today's role models? Who are, who are your role models who do you look to that have had that kind of significant impact in your life? Let me describe to you a man who had that kind of impact in my life. I first met him in September 1991. Carol and I had moved here to Upland, California from Dallas, Texas. We had been very actively involved in a church there in Dallas. And being relocated here to Southern California was not high on our list of things we wanted to do. We actually speculated together whether there was any Christians in California at all. <laughs> we thought it was a land of fruits and nuts, right? <laughs> well, our first week here, we drove by Upland Bible Church. It wasn't much to look at, and I, uh, I didn't want to visit. I didn't want to visit, but Carol prevailed upon me. She had spoken when we were out here earlier on a house hunting trip. She had spoken to the pastor of that church, and he was very, just very friendly, very nice, and, and so she said to me, can't we visit that church? That pastor just seems so nice. So uh, reluctantly, we, we visited. That first Sunday when we visited there, we were greeted by a man by the name of Andy Astadurian. He took us by the arm and he led us around and introduced us to a number of people there in that fellowship and then took us into the adult Sunday school class. There was only one. And like all first-time visitors, we sat in the very back row. 
feeling completely cut off from all that was going on. Before the class began, that class, by the way, was taught by a man named Preston Smith. Before the class began, there was a kind of a hand on my shoulder, and I turned and looked, and there was a a man standing there with a big, friendly smile on his face and stuck out his hand, and he said, Hi, I'm Pastor Jerry Westcott. You must be David and Carol. He said, "Uh, I've been looking for you. We said, how could you be looking for us? We've just met. And he said, uh, well, your wife called a few months ago and said you were moving here to Texas. And so I just marked it on my calendar that you'd probably be here about this time. So I've been waiting to meet you. Well, a friendship developed with that man and, and I blossomed through the years. After a while, he asked me if I would consider serving on the elder board, and we agreed. And uh, then a merger study team to consider the feasibility of a merger between Upland Bible Church and Foothill Baptist Church. I agreed to that as well and served on that merger study team. All the while, he was encouraging me and, and giving me opportunities in ministry along the way. And then at lunch one day in 1994, he turned my world upside down when he said to me, David, what do you you think about going into the ministry? And I said, Jerry, there's not a day goes by that I don't think about it. I had started at Dallas Seminary some years before, but had withdrawn for various reasons. And I said to him, who in the world would give me an opportunity? I said, I've never graduated from seminary. I have uh, four children a wife, a mortgage, who in the world would give me an opportunity? And he said, well, maybe we would. And so some discussions began among the elders. And, and in March 1st of 1995, I left Bank of America and joined the staff here at this church as associate pastor. And for the next seven years, I worked side by side with that man. And I saw his heart and his influence upon my life as I listened and learned from a man who had been in the ministry for many, many years. He was a gentle man. He was a patient man. He was a man who encouraged people to ministry. In particular, he encouraged the the development of ministry skills in others. He was not a jealous man. Many associate pastors have stories of woe to tell about working for a senior pastor who gives them all the dirty jobs and never gives them opportunity to do anything fun, nothing that would advance and grow their ministry skills. That was not him. He gave all kinds of opportunities, encouragement, feedback, so forth. Well, he retired two and a half years ago. He moved to Colorado. And... uh, About six months ago, he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. It's a bone cancer. It's incurable. It's uh, a cancer that's typically not um, discovered until it is terminal. And people who, by the time it's discovered, they don't live long. So he passed into the presence of our Lord Thursday night. And along the way, 
as I talked to him on the phone. Corresponded with him by email. I watched him rely on the grace of God to see him through right to the end. His love for Christ was strong all the way through. His sense of humor remained. His desire to to be with his Savior was intense. There was no fear. There were no regrets. There were certainly the, uh, the normal issues of leaving a wife and children behind. But he and his wife, Shirley, just walked with God right through to the end. So the life that I saw him live before me as, as a fellow elder and then as, a, as, as co-laborers in ministry together for seven years and then in these waning years of his life, including his cancer, right up through the end, I saw a man whose life um, lived out the faith that he preached. Remember those who led you, it says, who spoke the word of God to you. And considering the result of their contract of their conduct or the end of their life, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Last Thursday night, Jerry heard, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's rest. I would like to imitate his faith. He is a role model. He is a one of the few men who have been involved in my life at that kind of a level that have changed me forever. I hope you have that privilege too, that you've got somebody either now or you can look back on who has made that kind of an impact on you. If you've not had that privilege, then I would exhort you to pray and ask God to bring that person into your life. It will help you to grow in godliness. So, beloved, we must Duplicate godly role models. Secondly, we must dodge bad doctrine. That's what he comes back with here in verse 9. Do not be carried away, he says, by varied and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were thus occupied were not Benefited. Because Jesus Christ is unchanging, our commitment to him must be unchanging as well. Verse 8 is really a transitional verse. It, it supports the statements in verse 7 and it supports the statements in verse 9. It is, a, it is the foundation that lies underneath both of these commands. The apostle here is he's warning them. He's warning them about false doctrine to which the church has been exposed. And he's, he's warning them not to be carried away. Do you see that? Not to be carried away by it. The same verb, by the way, appears over here in Ephesians chapter 4. It's worth taking a look there, so go ahead and turn with me. Parapharo is the, is the Greek verb. And Paul, you know, he speaks here in chapter 4 of Ephesians. He talks in verse 11 that 
He, that is God, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastor-teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service and the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. The same verb, the same warning, to, be the, to, be, to avoid being carried away by false doctrine. The church needs pastor teachers to protect it. It needs shepherding elders to protect the church that it is not carried away by these varied and false doctrines. Back in Hebrews 13, verse 9, that's what he's saying there. Do not be carried away by these varied and strange teachings. What makes them varied and strange, by the way, is that they contradict the true message that has been given them by their founding pastor elders. The true message that's contained here in the first 12 chapters of this epistle. The church is in danger, and I, I can't emphasize this enough. The church is in danger of slipping backwards away from their full and, and wholehearted commitment to Christ. And in the face of the persecution, the slippage appears to be not just a, not a denial of Christ, but an addition of something to Christ. In this case, it's, it's a pulling in of, of Jewish ritual. And in particular here, verse 9, take a look at it. Foods is brought up. It is the addition of food rituals, various feasts, various ritualistic meals that were very much a part of Levitical Judaism. He's saying, don't be carried away by these varied and strange teachings. The Apostle Paul provides a very similar warning to the Colossian Christians. He says to them in Colossians chapter 2, that they are not to let anyone sit in judgment on them respect, in respect to food or drink, because things like this disappear by the very act of using them. Do not let yourself be judged according to these food issues. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We're now worse off if we eat, we're no better off if we don't. It is a neutral issue. And as the writer says here, it is by divine grace and not by rules about food that the heart or the, that is the spiritual life is nourished. Look again, verse 9. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace and not by foods. It is divine grace that strengthens us in our spiritual life. Not rules about food imposed upon us by external authorities. These have never helped anyone maintain a closer walk with God. Our strength comes from the outside. That is grace. Not by means of human activities that can be performed in the flesh. Our strength comes from without. Do you see it? For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Grace comes from God. It is His gift to us. It's from the outside. 
It's not the stuff that we can work up from the inside. And those who practice these dietary regulations, look what it says. They didn't get the goal that they were after. They wanted closer fellowship with God, but it says though through which those who were thus occupied were not benefited. You see that? I mean, he's just saying there's foolishness here. You think you're going to draw closer to God by these external regulations, and he's saying you don't get what you're after because it's from the outside. It is grace. It is the work of grace upon your heart, upon your life, that, that grows you in true spirituality. Is It is not a set of rules imposed upon you by someone else or self-imposed rules. They do not draw you any nearer to God. You don't get the very thing you're after. Beloved, he's talking about legalism. Verse 9, he is talking about legalism. Now, legalism comes in two forms. There is the spiritually deadly form of adding human works or works of human merit to God's work of justification. That is a spiritually deadly form. The notion that we can somehow add works of human merit to the, to the work of God's grace and justification. But there is also a spiritually stunting form, which is the adding of non-biblical mandates to the work of sanctification. One is will literally damn someone to hell. The addition of human work to justification. One will stunt you in your spiritual growth. It's a serious issue. It's a very serious issue. What I want to do tonight is springboarding off of this verse is to just briefly look at these two forms of legalism. Let's deal and dispense with the one first that I think we could all quickly reject. That we might have time to consider the one to which we are all susceptible to. So let's deal first with the one of adding merit to salvation. Paul says, Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, right? And that not of yourselves, it is what? The gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. I mean, we all affirm that, right? What that statement says is that any attempt to add requirement beyond repentance and faith in Christ as either a precondition or a necessary addition Is to, is to cut the gospel out. In Galatians chapter 1, go ahead and turn back there. The Apostle Paul is so worked up over this issue that he places an anathema upon it, a curse. Galatians 1. This is an amazing letter, by the way, because he has no commendation for them at all. He just launches it. He is so provoked by this because it is a damning heresy. Verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be anathema. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you have received, let him be accursed. In the strongest possible terms, the Apostle Paul says that if you are adding human works and creating another gospel, you are to be damned because the wickedness that you're teaching will damn the souls of others. Now, in the first century, this form of legalism, most commonly associated with those known as Judaizers, you probably have heard that term before, that is, those that wanted to add the law back in. Most commonly, it was, it was picked up in the, in the requirement that they were insisting upon circumcision. They were saying that the Gentiles must be circumcised. And see, that was really shorthand. And it was more than about just a cutting of flesh. Circumcision embodied the whole law. And so what they were saying is that these Gentile believers needed to come back under the Mosaic law. And Paul would have no part of it. Acts chapter 15 is the Jerusalem council, right? When those came to Antioch to try to put that heresy upon the church there, Paul, it says in, in chapter 15 and verse 1 that that he, uh, the, the Greek implies that he stood nose to nose with them and he screamed at them. He was so agitated. Later in Galatians 2, verses 4 and 5, they went to Jerusalem to, re, to resolve this issue. And Paul said, I didn't yield to them, not for one instant. Because if I were to yield to them, we would lose the gospel. The addition of works... The faith is to lose the gospel entirely. Now, there are modern examples of this heresy. They're out there. <coughs> there are some claiming to be Christians who say that you, that you must have faith in Christ and you must be baptized. Now, baptism is a step of discipleship. There's no question about it. But the addition of a requirement for baptism in order to be right before God, in order to be justified before God, and this, by the way, is taught by some Pentecostal groups, is a damnable heresy. There are others who say you must have faith in Christ and you must attend church in order to be saved. It's a heresy. There are some that say you must have faith in Christ and you must keep the sacraments. Damnable heresy. And we can all agree to that, I think, without too much problems at all. The idea of adding merit to salvation. But it's the second one that trips us up. It's the idea of adding non-biblical mandates to sanctification. And it stunts our spiritual growth, beloved. Paul says later in Galatians chapter 3, verse 3, he said, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, the ground here is a little more slippery, a little more difficult to navigate. Right? Clearly, justification is produced by grace through faith. It reveals itself, though, in a changed life, right? The life should change, 
Ephesians 2.10, right? After that great statement there in 8 and 9, Ephesians 2.10 said, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, the, so good works should flow out of salvation. That is a biblical teaching. So it's not a, we're not advocating antinomianism here, that it, that it doesn't, you know, you can live any way you want. That's not the point. The New Testament is filled with clear ethical commands regarding how a Christian needs to abandon the old patterns of life, right? Put off the old man, Ephesians 4, and put on the new man in Christ. And Paul elaborates that there. There are very clear ethical commands in the New Testament about how our behavior must change if we are new in Christ. But the difficulty arises for us, and it arises for each of us as individuals, when we have certain personal convictions, certain personal convictions about things, those personal convictions with regard to various external behaviors that are not clearly defined in Scripture. And when we then make those normative for others, we begin to judge others as less spiritual than we are because they don't keep our set of personal convictions. We enter into the sin of judging. We think those that don't hold our convictions are somehow less godly than we are. The Apostle Paul, by the way, addresses this. I'll turn you there to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We don't have time to really exegete this passage, but I want to lift out verses 5 and 6. We'll come back to this perhaps at some point. Paul there says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. The time he's talking about is the return of Christ when all things are revealed. But wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Now, these things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes that in us you might learn not to exceed what is written, in order that no one of you might become arrogant in behalf of one against the other. The two things that he warns us against here are not to exceed that which is written. That means not to go beyond what the Bible has clearly disclosed. And not to judge the motives of other people's hearts. Because you cannot see their heart. You might think you can discern what they're about by their external behavior, but you cannot see their heart. And so you are forbidden to make a judgment about them in these areas that are these things hidden in darkness. I think it's a reference, by the way, back to Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, right? The things revealed belong to us and to our sons. There are many, many things that the Bible does not clearly and explicitly reveal. You can make application of teaching and you can develop personal convictions in certain areas. But the Bible is not explicit and not clear in many of these areas. And where it is not, you do not have the right to impose it on anyone else, nor to judge their motives 
if they don't hold to the same convictions that you do. In just a few minutes that's left, let me read you a list that is bound to shake a few of us up. Hopefully, well, I shouldn't say hopefully. I mean, I guess hopefully we wouldn't find ourselves anywhere on this list. But I think what probably is going to happen is that we're going to find ourselves somewhere on this list. Examples of non-biblical personal convictions. Now, you, let, me, let me emphasize, you can hold these convictions personally. It's between you and your God. Right? He will judge. The master will judge the servant and he will make him stand. And when it's all revealed in the end time, Paul says back there in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, right? There is praise coming. So let me run a few of these by you. Maybe you've said these things. Maybe you've thought these things. Maybe someone has said these things to you. Christians should not drive expensive cars. That can be a personal conviction of yours, and that's fine. But you have no right to impose that conviction on someone else. You don't know the motive of their heart that lies behind the car that they drive. God alone knows that motive, and God will judge it in His own time. Christians should not borrow money. Playing cards is sinful. Going to movies is wrong. Or fill in the appropriate rating. I call it the ratings game. Fill in the appropriate rating. Going to movies that are rated is wrong. Men must not have long hair. Women must not have short hair. By the way, what is long and what is short? (laughs) Women should wear dresses. Men should wear ties to church. Rock music is the devil's music. Women must not work outside the home. Christians should not send their children to public school. Birth control is sinful. The person who practices the discipline of fasting is more spiritual than someone who doesn't. If you feed your baby on demand or let them sleep in bed with you, then you are a bad parent. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of some of these. Maybe you've delivered some of these, or maybe you've just thought some of these. In any one of these, by the way, you can hold as a personal conviction before God. Let each man be convinced in his own heart. The problem becomes is then when we judge our brothers and sisters on these non-biblical issues, the places where the Bible is not explicit. You know, I was thinking about this passage here in Hebrews 13, verse 9, and as I was, I was unpacking it in my study, I was just thinking about the whole issue of foods, and I was thinking, well, I mean, if it's all about foods, I, I've never met anybody in the church that had problems with foods. So is this whole verse irrelevant? Then I just thought about it a little more. And I thought, well, no, we don't struggle with foods. We just struggle with other equally 
gray issues. Beloved, the Apostle says to us here that none of these areas in and of themselves will commend us to God. We are not closer to God because we avoid these things or because we practice these things. But I'll tell you what, if we hold a judgmental spirit with regard to these kinds of issues and judge other believers, and by the way, legalism is just an institutionalized form of personal judgment. All right, Jesus said, remove the log from your own eye. These things will stunt our personal growth. They will divide the church of God. They will ruin the testimony of the church of God before the unbelieving world. So I say it's a difficult slope. It's The footing is a little slippery. There are certainly very clear and explicit ethical commands, those we can make very clear and definitive statements on. It's all of these others. I just gave you a sample. There are plenty more, and I'm sure you can think them up. Of issues where the Bible does not speak explicitly. We are not to go beyond that which is written. And we are not to judge the motives of someone's heart that you cannot see. God will reveal it. And notice what the apostle says there, if you're back there in 1 Corinthians 4, notice what he says. He says they will receive praise. Do you see that? They will receive praise. The revealing in this context, Paul is not saying they're going to be judged. He's saying they'll receive praise. Let's pray. Our Father God, I thank you for the godly role models that you have brought into our lives. I thank you, Father, for Pastor Jerry Westcott who had such a tremendous impact on my life. And I know upon the life of many others, including many who are here tonight in this room. And Lord God, he will be missed. We rejoice that he has graduated. We rejoice in the fact that sin has now been completely wiped out in his life. It has no more hold on him at all. The very presence of sin has been annihilated. He is home with you. Receiving the reward that was due him that he might then cast his crown at your feet. Trophy of your grace. Pray, Father, that you would help us to be a role model for others. We pray, our Father, that when our time comes and a crowd gathers to at our funeral that they will be able to stand and testify and say that this person made a real impact in my life and lord we pray as well for this whole difficult issue of legalism an attitude of judgment an attitude our father that we confess that every single one of us is guilty of. How easily we slip into judging one another. 
making statements about other people's motives when we have the foggiest idea what lies within their heart. Lord God, we don't even know what lies in our own heart half the time. Our Father, grant us deliverance from this sin and, and keep us as a fellowship from institutionalizing it. Give us a generous spirit of grace to live with one another in an understanding way. And our Father, we ask you to work in and through this fellowship to reach out to the community for Christ with a message that is winsome and compelling, with lives that are truly changed, the testimony of our mouths and the testimony of our lives would be in accord one with another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.